The Santa Barbara Theater of the Air presents Just Between Us, a special program of six solo performance pieces by playwrights and authors. First, we hear Alvin Katakatan in his own piece, No Fat Pigs Allowed. When we were kids, my little brother and I would get into these awful fights. He's a psychopath. Really, he is. He would do crazy things just to be mean. I'd come out of the bathroom after brushing my teeth. He'd look at me and say, Did you just brush your teeth? Yeah. I scrubbed the inside of the toilet bowl with your toothbrush. Well, I didn't know what to believe. Who does that sort of thing? So I went upstairs to the other bathroom and washed my mouth out with scope for half an hour. I made sure he didn't see me, though. The mind games he would play were ruthless. He's two years younger and physically weaker than me, so he had to resort to such tactics. He's the middle child, so that explains a lot. But the lengths he would go to just to get my goat makes me wonder. Oh, who the granddaddy of them all. The event that proved to me, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he was a criminal mastermind was when I was twelve and he was ten. I walked by him one night in the living room. He was cutting his fingernails with the clippers. The whole time he had this maniacal look in his eyes. I just chalked it up to his regular weirdness. He looks crazy most of the time, so I didn't think anything of it. The next night, I come home after school and race to the living room to watch G.I. Joe. This is a ritual of ours. The first one to get to the remote gets rule over the TV. If he gets the remote, we end up watching Jam and the Holograms or My Little Pony. I told you he's weird. So I'm watching G.I. Joe, and in the middle of the cartoon, he grabs the remote control from the coffee table and starts changing channels on me. Hey, I'm watching, I say. No, I'm watching, he says, and he doesn't stop changing the channels. He's not watching anything. He's just flipping channels aimlessly. I tell him to stop it and give me back the remote, but he keeps flipping channels like the nutball that he is. He's not even looking at the TV. He's looking straight at me to see my reaction. I yell, Give it! No! Give it! No! Give it, you big fag! He hates it when I call him that. His face turns red, and he goes into this berserker rage. He grabs the giant plastic ashtray off the corner table and flings it at me, discus style. I dodge it, and it whizzes by my face. He screams at me, Fat pig! And he takes off. I chase after him, and he runs around the corner from the living room, down the hall, through the kitchen. I'm right behind him, so he's scared, because I'm two years older and 30 pounds overweight. We've done this many times before. I may be heavy, but I'm fast. His usual routine is to round up the stairs to his bedroom and lock the door so I can't get at him. But this time was different. Halfway up the stairs, he stops and turns to look at me. He's looking at me victorious, like he's got me trapped or something. I'm stunned, because he's never done this before. Then, he unsheathes his claws and scratches me down the face. I stand there in disbelief. I'm bleeding. It takes a second, but it all comes together. He was clipping his nails last night into sharp points so he could scratch me down the face. The psycho! 
In an instant, he's up the stairs to his bedroom. He slams the door shut and locks it. I get to it and start banging and screaming outside the door. Open the door! Open the door, you big fag! Open the door so I can kick your ass! No, he says. Read the sign! Then I look up and see a sheet of paper taped to his door. On it is a hand-drawn picture of a pig with words saying, No fat pigs allowed. This was all premeditated. He went to the trouble of drawing a sign and taping it to his door. He had this all planned out. The freak! My brother was gay. I didn't know it back then. It was just name-calling. I called him the Big Fag, and he called me the Fat Pig. He died six months ago of leukemia. I thought he would make it. I thought I would have time to make it all up to him, but he got so sick so fast. So now all I have are these memories of the crazy things he did and our horrible fights, all of which I won. I wish I let him win once in a while. I wish I let him win. Now, Don Stewart in Rash by Eric Bogosian. So what we did, we put a chain-link fence around the whole 15 acres, barbed wire on top, for security. For security. Because you know, Charlie, we're here all summer. Kids are running around the yard. I sleep better at night, just know what's out there. Oh, yeah, we're here all summer. I go down to the city maybe two, three times a month. But you know it's hot down there, and we got everything we need right up here. The pool, Sonia's got a tennis court. I got my griller. I just stay here all summer and grill. I put everything on this thing, steaks, chops, chicken. Last Sunday, I did some lobsters. They came out beautiful. Once they stop moving, they're a snap to cook. Did you look at my grill, Charlie? Look at my grill. It's brand new. I just got it. It's beautiful. See, right here where the steaks are, this is the grilling part. Then over here, I got two stove tops. You want to boil some peas, carrots, underneath, oven. You can bake a cake, cookies, whatever you want. Up here, a microwave oven, ice chest on the side, refrigerator on the back, three phone lines. Very reasonable. Around three grand. Got it from Hammaker Schlemmer Catalog. I love it. I just stand here all summer and grill. Very relaxing. I just stay here by the pool. They swim, I grill. Makes me mellow. Like uh, meditating. What? No, we don't want any. You want any goat cheese? Charlie doesn't want any either. I don't care what you did to it. We hate goat cheese. Listen, honey, we're starving to death out here. Send out some Doritos or something. Well, if you're too busy, Jeremy can bring them. Jeremy, honey. Go up to Mommy on the porch. Get Daddy and Uncle Charlie some Doritos. He can do it, Sonia. Just give him the Doritos. Give him the Doritos. Don't give him any goat cheese. Oh, yeah, he loves it. He's in there all day like a fish. No, 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 no. There's no chlorine in that pool, Charlie. They use chlorine in the cheap pools. This filter is the best you can get. 14 layers of charcoal, 3 layers of sand... 
There's a machine. You can't see it. It's under the tennis court. It boils the water into steam, sterilizes it drop by drop. Comes back to the pool completely pure. Completely pure. I mean, you can't get water like that in, in nature. Because I figure, we've got people coming over every weekend. Somebody's going to come over and do a couple of laps. Guy's got herpes. Next thing I know, everybody in the house has herpes. What do you do with a six-year-old with herpes? I figure, spend the money, get the filter. Why waste the aggravation? Yeah, I got a good life. I never want to leave the house. I had to go to the city last week, visit a client. It was torture. It was like going off to war. I mean, you go down there now, it's like the black hole of Calcutta. You've been down there lately. It's depressing. They're lying on the streets, begging, on drugs. With the babies now, they're begging. I feel so bad for those poor people because it's not their fault. But what can you say? Life isn't fair. It's the roll of the dice. They're screwed. I didn't make up the rules. I just thank God he loves us. You like roast peppers? Look at this pepper. Isn't it beautiful? Balducci's, five bucks each. Best you can get. I'll have one, too. See, I keep them over here in the ice chest. Anytime I want peppers, I... What? Yes, put the corn on now. Yeah, put the corn on now, Sonia. The steak's going to be ready in five minutes. You want cold steak? No, I'm asking you, want cold steak? Well, then put the corn on now. Did I tell you about last spring when we went on vacation? No, I know you know we went on vacation, but let me tell you. About... Three weeks before we go away, I'm working in Midtown around 48th Street. And every day I go out to lunch to stretch my legs. And every day there's this guy in front of the building with one of those signs, we'll work for food, begging. So every day I pass this guy. I give him a quarter. I figure I can afford it. The guy gets used to seeing me. Every day at lunch, sees me coming, kind of gets all perky when he sees me. He gets up on his hind legs. So about a week before we're going on vacation, I go out to lunch. I see the guy. He sees me. I reach into my pocket. I don't have any change. He's looking at me. So I figure, what the hell? Who's it going to hurt? Give the guy a buck. Well, I throw a buck to the guy. Turns out it's not a buck. It's a $20 bill. Don't ask me how it happened. Guy jumps up, starts shaking my hand, blessing me, telling me God loves me, Jesus loves me, shaking my hand in the middle of the sidewalk. And I never really looked at this guy before. He's got all these sores all over his face, no teeth. His breath could peel paint. And I'm thinking, you know, I gave you the money. Now go back and sit down. Anyway, I forget about the guy. Three days later, me and Sonia go down to St. Bart's. Very nice hotel by the beach. They give you a brochure about the food and how there's these dolphins. You you lie on the beach and watch the dolphins. $700 a night. We got down there. I'm a little tense. I want to relax. So we go down to the beach. I'm lying there looking for dolphins. No dolphins. I'm getting a strain in my neck. Turns out there's no dolphins in the Caribbean. I'm in litigation with the hotel as we speak. Anyway, we're lying there. Sonia says, what's that? She's pointing to the back of my hand. There's this rash on the back of my hand. I say, I don't know, poison ivy from the country house. Forget about it. Charlie, by the end of the week, this rash is halfway up my arm. We come back to the city. I go straight to the doctors. He says, 
Good thing you came to see me. If you hadn't come to see me, that would have gone right up your arm, up your neck, into your eyes. You'd be blind. Turns out, right, that's right, the guy. Turns out, some kind of disease they give each other in the men's shelter. Some kind of bum disease. All I'm saying is, Charlie, all I'm saying, I give the guy money, he gives me a disease. Jeremy, what are you doing? No, honey, don't throw Doritos in the pool. Get away from the pool. You're going to clog up the filter. It's going to cost me $50,000. Now get away from the pool. Well, just go somewhere. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm the world's biggest liberal. But, you know, I'm watching that CNN. I'm watching those riots in L.A., and I'm thinking to myself, what if they start doing that around here? What if they start running around like that around here? I mean... Look at this house, Charlie. You can't see this house from the road. We're vulnerable up here. I mean, what happens? We're up here one Sunday. We're hanging out, reading the paper, eating bagels, grinding coffee beans. I pick up the phone to call my mom. And, oh, the phone is dead. I look up. A couple of homies are at the back door, breaking down the back door. They don't have to be black. They could be anybody. Then what do I do? What do I do then? Oh, come on in. Would you like a cup of coffee? Maybe you'd like to rape my wife, kill my kids, burn my house down. What do I do then, Charlie? What do I do? That's why I have a gun. I would. I would shoot them. For the kids, I would shoot them. If they were from the phone company, I would still shoot them. Anyway, these are ready. Jeremy, honey, come out of the bushes. Daddy, not angry anymore. Come on out. We'll discuss it later. We're going to have Din Din now. No, honey, no hot dogs. We got $15 a pound prime sirloin from Dean and DeLuca. Now, come on out. Come on. Come on in the house. Next, we hear Tony Marotti in Red Diaper Baby by Josh Kornbluth. My father, Paul Kornbluth, was a communist. He believed there was going to be a violent communist revolution in this country and that I was going to lead it, just so you can get the sense of the pressure. And anything my father told me, I believe, because my father was such a physically magnificent man. He was big. He had this great big pot belly, and not a wiggly-jiggly social democrat pot belly, firm communist pot belly. You bopped it, it would bop you back. It was strong. And he had powerful legs from the running track at the City College of New York, he had these beefy arms, and he was naked virtually all the time, naked in the apartment. And all over his body, he had these patches of talcum powder. You know, Johnson's baby powder. I guess because he was a big man and he would chafe, especially around his private parts. And he had me on the weekends. I would have loved to have slept in late on the weekends, but I couldn't because my father wouldn't let me. He would wake me up. This is how he'd wake me up. He'd come bursting into my room, and then he'd stop in the doorway, and when he stopped, the talcum powder would come bouncing off of his balls. It was like the entrance of a great magician. Then he'd come running up to my bed, looming over me. He'd sing. Arise, ye prisoner of starvation. Arise, ye wretched of the earth. I didn't know that was the international. I didn't know that was the international communist anthem. I thought it was my own personal wake-up song. And if I didn't show the proper signs of life right away, my father would lean down over me 
His long, graying hair would straggle down. His beard would flutter down into my nose, and he'd yell, Wake up, little fucker! That was his nickname for me. Nothing at all pejorative about it as far as my father was concerned. For my dad, calling me that was like calling me Junior. I knew from an early age that one day I must grow up and become a big fucker, and I assumed that that would be around the time that I would lead the revolution. Because my dad had told me over and over that all the great revolutionaries were also great fuggers. But for now, I was just lying there in my bed, my father looming over me with his, to me, enormous penis, swinging around, spewing smoke, powder, whatever. Well, I just had this little six-year-old training penis, if you will. I didn't realize at the time that my father had his own language. Not only his own English, but his own Yiddish. I used to think it was real Yiddish. Then my mom would say, that's not Yiddish. I went to Yiddish school in Bensonhurst, and what your father speaks is not Yiddish. And I'd say, you mean Auska is not? No, this is an Oiska, but there's no Auska. Well, in my father's Yiddish, there was a term Auska. Auska was a prefix, meaning a lot of, very. As in, I'm Auska cold, my son. And I'd say, of course you're Auska cold, Dad. You're Auska naked. The window is Auska open, as it would be in the kitchen, where we'd go for breakfast. Dad and I would sit around the kitchen table having hard-boiled eggs, and my father not being a soft-boiled kind of guy. And never little eggs. When Dad went shopping for eggs, he always got Auska jumbo large-size eggs, so we would not want for eggs. And we'd smear on our eggs, in my father's language, salad dressing, meaning mayonnaise. And we'd drink juice, apple juice, orange juice. And Dad would regale me with his stories of organizing in the South with the Henry Wallace campaign. Now, that's Henry Wallace. Henry, okay? He would drill me over and over in the catechisms of our faith, of communism, like how society has been driven from one stage to the next, driven inexorably by the forces of dialectical materialism until, according to Marx and Engels, and my dad. The first human society was primitive communalism. Everyone's just kind of dancing around like at a Grateful Dead concert. Then the next stage after primitive communalism was slavery, which must have been a bummer of a transition. Then from slavery to feudalism, and then from feudalism, well, we've learned from history that it's very important after feudalism to stop in capitalism before moving on to socialism. Very important to stop in capitalism because that's where you get your appliances. You stop in capitalism, you get your stuff, and you move on to socialism and finally to communism, and then you're back at the concert. After breakfast, me and my dad would move from the kitchen into the living room. Although when I say kitchen and living room, I'm being euphemistic. There was one basic room, except for my bedroom. Dad always insisted that I have my own bedroom for my privacy. He'd just come bursting in at any moment. But aside from my bedroom, there was just one basic room. That's because when my father moved into an apartment, the first thing he'd do is he'd knock down all the walls. The first time he did this, we had to move right away because we lived on the first floor and the building came Auska down. So we moved into the next building, same landlord, who insisted on giving my dad a lecture on the crucial architectural concepts of the supporting wall. That's the wall you must not knock down. So my dad went knocking around with his hammer. 
to find the one wall that wasn't hollow, left that one up, knocked down all the other walls. And all along the external walls of our kitchen, cum bathroom, cum living room, cum dining room area were posters of our heroes, our gods, W.E.B. Du Bois, Malcolm X, Dr. King, Ho Chi Minh, Bertolt Brecht, Emma Goldman. And then, at the end of all these posters, my height chart. See how the little fugger measures up. Then we go outside for our walks. When we went outside, my father, in his one true concession to society, would put on clothing. Dad wore this one-piece bright orange jumpsuit, a parachute outfit, the broad collar and a big zipper, a peace symbol pull thing that would seal in the freshness of the powder. (laughs) Being communists, we had songs associated with every activity. But being dad didn't have just generic walking songs. We had specific going up the hill songs, specific going down the hill songs. We had learned our biggest going up the hill song off an album by Paul Robeson, a great Jewish folk singer. It was a record my dad had borrowed from the public library and then as a revolutionary act refused to return. And my mom was a librarian. Going up the hill, me and my dad would sing... I yuk yem, I yuk yem, oh Volga, Volga, yuk yem. Very hard to walk fast while singing I yuk nem. A lot easier on our going down the hill song, which we had learned off an album by Doc Watson, a great Jewish folk singer from the Appalachians, another record my dad had liberated from the library. Going down the hill, me and my dad would sing, As I go down in the valley to pray, as we went down in the valley to pray on East 7th Street, between C and D. As I go down in the valley to pray, studying about that good old way. My father couldn't hear me. He thought I wasn't singing. He didn't connect it with the fact that he was singing so loud he was drowning me out. So periodically he'd turn to me on the sidewalk and go, Sing louder, my son, I can't hear you. And we'd hit the flatlands of Manhattan as we continued north on our walks towards Herald Square. And along the flatlands we'd sing what was, for us, flat songs, rounds, which were easier for me, more even between the two singers. And along the flatlands we would stop at the bodega to pick up supplies. We'd stop at the pharmacy to get Dad's pills. We'd continue north along the flatlands and sing rounds like, Come, follow, 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 follow me To the greenwood, to the greenwood, to the greenwood, greenwood tree. A nice cheerful walking song, though confusing lyrically to an urban child. Follow thee to the greenwood tree? Why? I'd much rather follow thee to say chock full of nuts, which was the kind of place we had to eat me and dad, because we had to live Auska cheaply, which was fine with me. I loved eating at places like Chock Full. You could have a nice hot dog, maybe some coconut cake. And then after a weekend of this kind of Auska fun, my dad, as the courts had mandated, had to return me to my mom, Bernice Bunny Selden, also Jewish, also a New Yorker, 
also a city college grad, also a communist, but so different from my father in temperament. If my father was an out-there, Auska communist, my mom, Inska. And she had her own Inska wake-up song for me, too. And like I thought Dad had written the Internationale for me. I thought my mom had written her wake-up song for me. I only found out years later that Irving Berlin wrote it. My mom would be getting ready to go to work at the library across the river. She'd go into the bathroom in her nightgown and come back out with her hair in a bun. Then she'd go back into the bathroom and come out with another bun being added from some mysterious source. And she'd stand in my open doorway, which was easy for her to do because for some reason she would not let me have a door. And she'd tiptoe up to my bed and she'd lean down and sing, Oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. Oh, how I love to stay in bed. For the hardest blow of all is to hear that bugler call. You gotta get up, you gotta get up, you gotta get up in the morning. Pretty nice wake-up song. Unless you know the second verse, which to me gets into a surreal level of violence that I find almost Sam Peckinpah-esque. Someday I'm gonna murder the bugler. Someday you're gonna find him dead. I'll amputate his reveille and stamp upon it heavily and spend the rest of my life in bed. I thought she could snap at any moment, so I'd get out of bed. I didn't want my reveille amputated, but I still didn't have that get-up-and-go that the Internationale gives a kid. So she'd guide me, gently, up from my bed and lead me into the living room and sit me down on the couch, and then she had this little motherly trick she'd play on me to get me going in the morning. She'd serve me a tall cup of double espresso with whipped cream and a maraschino cherry on top because I'm a little kid. And I'd sit there sipping my double espresso on the couch beneath the half a dozen or so ceramic discs that she bought in Mexico, where she went to divorce my dad, which, by the way, was when I was about six months old. They're married for nine years, then when I'm born. Then, when I'm six months old, they divorced. From time to time, I'd wonder why. Then, a few months ago, I'm reading this article in the Village Voice about a guy named Saul Newton, a crazed psychoanalyst who ran this psychoanalytical cult called the Sullivanians. They had a co-op on the Upper West Side. Well, I'm reading about this Saul Newton guy and how he told his patients that the family is evil. Parents are intrinsically evil, and they can only wreak havoc on their children. You must break up the family. I'm reading about this guy, Saul Newton. Saul Newton? Saul Newton! Suddenly it hit me. Wait a second. My dad's therapist named Saul. So I call up my mom, and I said, Mom, I'm reading about this Saul Newton guy. And she said, Yeah, that was your father's therapist. Evidently, Dad was an early patient of Saul's, sort of a test case. And after I was born, Saul convinced my dad that now that he had a family, and families were evil, his family must be broken up. So Dad left me and my mom up in Washington Heights, and he got an apartment down on the Lower East Side. And then, according to my mom, after a couple of weeks, Dad started to miss us. He came running up the island to try to reconcile with us. But Mom saw him coming and escaped with me down to Mexico, where she got the divorce, bought big, 
floppy hats, danced around in circles with strangers, and got half a dozen or so ceramic discs. Each one depicts a woman escaping from slavery. So I'd sit there under the discs on the couch, sipping my double espresso, as my mom went up to the old radio console and turned on WBAI. Listener-sponsored. Sometimes listener take over WBAI. And the morning disc jockey at the time was Julius Lester, he of the Auska Deep Voice. And supposedly, Julius's program was a classical music show. But what Julius would do is he'd play about five minutes of a Baroque oboe concerto and then speak for hours about his various ex-wives and their sexual peccadilloes. And I'd listen real carefully to Julius. And then I'd go running off to school, jazzed. I was so excited my first day of kindergarten. After spending my first five years of my life exclusively in the company of my parents and their friends, that day, for the first time, I was going to get to mingle with the masses. Boy, was I disappointed. That first day, I walked into my kindergarten classroom at PS 128, and I saw all these little kids running around, screaming, pulling air, bopping each other, crying. I thought, how will I ever organize these people? Now, Ted Wynn in Blood and Brains by Roger Gwenver Smith. I am a fugitive slave. I live underneath the Hollywood freeway or the Brooklyn Bridge. Somewhere under the rainbow, my coalition kept warm by blazing barrels of trash, scraps from the cane fields, and fast food establishments. I'm on the run, up and down a basketball court and into the bush. You can't touch me? I'm a maroon chilling high above the smog line and the tourist enclaves. The North Star, visible every night, my guide into a Philly groove, the Delphonics, soundtracks to my most intimate moments. Ain't no stopping me now. I'm on the move, up the Chesapeake and into the Mississippi, inventing jazz and blood plasma along the way. I'm wearing a hat, a brim, a new attitude, and I'm ready for a new century, so bring it on. Serve it up with mush, crumbs from the table of discontents. I'm going to the Great House Farm, oh yeah. And I can't decide if I want to wear dreads, or an afro, or a skinhead, or a conch. So I'm shopping for wigs. Do you have the Henry Box Brown look? He was shipped north in a box and wound up with a flat top. Henry Box Brown. I'm on the run in a white Bronco disguised as an ex-football player through the streets of Virginia Beach and into a boxing ring, battering my brother to death, grinning at the press conference, proclaiming victory and misquoting some dead leader. I am a movie star, gun at the ready, plastered on plantation walls next to the malt liquor ads, drunk on my own infected blood, strong. Stronger than the jackass and the circus elephant that get more respect than I do. No, I'm not registered to vote, but I'm still running for office. For the Canadian border. For some hovel in South London where I can make a living, a better living than I'm making now cutting cane with this rusty machete. My master is my father. My father is my master. Note my resemblance to this wooden nickel. 
Isn't my grimace the same as his? I whipped my overseer. Didn't you see it on cops? I whipped Rosa Parks. She forgave me. I know how to do the Black Panther stomp, the Charleston, and don't forget the Texas hop. Disguised myself as a tap dancer, entertained on the White House lawn, all the while tapping the phone and getting the message out to the barbershops and the lodges of the Howard University School of Law. You never go outside without wearing my root tucked into my right Nike boot. I'm a fugitive slave running in Hitler's Olympics, gold chains and medals dangling on the cover of a box of Wheaties, constructing ships for my imminent departure, moored in the Harlem River or Lake Michigan when it's frozen over. My kind of town. Quiet. No slave catches in sight. Just a soft neon glow from the taquerias. Someone wants to sell me a green card. I'm in the Grand Canyon, listening to Bob Marley tapes, smoking the peace pipe with Osceola and the wild chupitulas, jumping up at Mardi Gras, at Carnival, and on the 1st and 15th of every month, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay watching luxury liners go by, and it's New Year's Eve, and they're playing the blues, and public enemy, and I'm trying desperately not to believe the hype. All I need is my Thorazine. I'm not a violent person, just terribly misguided. I went into space and blew up. I went into hiding up your family tree. Don't look now. I'm an American slave and I've got my own sitcom. Millions of laughs per century with no commercial interruption. I wear three-piece suits and penny loafers. I've read the classics. I've been to Yale and I've been to jail. Trumped up charges. They gagged me. Then they made me a news anchor on the Titanic, reporting live from a disaster in progress. Swam to shore with Cuban refugees, only to be shipped to Panama, where we swam the canal after we dug it. The Rio Grande, the Nile with Langston Hughes, caught the mock slave auction in Williamsburg. Took a couple of licks, just for old times' sake. Gave a couple to show my versatility. Personally escorted Nelson Mandela throughout the 50 states. Showed him where the Civil War started and never ended. The Underground Railroad, upgraded for the 1990s. Let's just say it runs from here to there and it's no straight path. I'm moving to the beat of bare feet, shackled and perfumed, pedicured for the front row patrons who love public executions. Yeah, I ran with Fred, knew him from the projects. Even back in the day, he had his own talk show. Guests like Nat Turner and Denmark Vesey. Theme song went, learning will spoil the best nigga in the world. So let's get spoiled, y'all. That's how I learned my ABC. Wrote my first book. Gave my first lecture. Recorded my first platinum CD. Conferred with Dr. King at the Lorraine Motel. Told him to duck. Now I'm at large. My portrait on the post office wall and the cover of Time magazine. A tremendous reward for my capture because I'm the most valuable player. One of the world's great men of color. Taught Hendrix how to play Foxy Lady. Yet invisible in my Eleganza ensemble. My tuxedo. My butt nakedness at Attica. 
my tears frozen in some rerun sequence on somebody's telethon. I'm eating my past to freedom, once carefully forged and now digested. My only meal for days will work for food. My latest poem, scrawled on Henry Brown's discarded box. A liquor company told me I'm descended from great kings and queens. Forty ounces of black history, anybody? You can't catch me. I know all the black roads and alleys, the best restaurants, how to live high on the hog. I invented chitlins and crack cocaine. A secret lab behind where Thurgood Marshall plotted civil rights and political casualties come to be consoled, where the dismembered get stitched, and everything is everything. Doorman to the best club in the world, where the passwords are freedom now. Changed my name from Bailey to Stanley to Johnson to Douglas to Ida B. Wells. Plotted with John Brown. Narrowly escaped the noose myself. Still running. All those European tours applauded and lauded till they mistook me for an Arab. Got hooked on heroin and bebop. Started my own import-export concern. Got busted for trafficking in literacy. Still doing time on that charge. Never should have preached about David or Goliath or how we need to boycott Denny's. This is written by myself, in blood if necessary. No West Side abolitionist furiously working the laptop on my behalf, scripting my punchlines and designing my wardrobe. This is written in my mother's milk, stronger than any decongestant. My voice is my own, no Richard and Willie act here. I write my own music, too. The only tune I've ever covered was the Star Spangled Banner, 1983 NBA All-Star Game. Remember? I've gone from Jamestown to Trenchtown to Jonestown. Never did like the Kool-Aid. Fought in every war invented and then some. Right now I'm fighting for the right to peddle this knowledge on this particular corner at this particular time. Dime bags of truth, anybody? Fugitive in the jungles of Suriname and the hills above South Central, awaiting an earthquake or an insurrection, whichever comes first. Meanwhile, making myself heard on the far end of the dial, in between the shouts and screams, the grunts and sighs, the sirens and helicopters, dogs lapping at my scent, chasing me since 1838 up and down Malcolm X Boulevard. Somebody tell me it's just like a Spike Lee movie. Somebody tell me why I just fired two rounds into my own reflection like some narcissist has gone mad. I've read the classics, remember? Spray painting my name, any name on any wall that will have me, outlaw, gangster rapper, PhD. My dissertation lies unread, trampled underneath the crowd as they file out of Madison Square Garden or the unemployment office or the 4th of July celebration where they just hang two niggas for sport. Still I rise from this nightmare called history. Cold sweats in my cardboard box, my concrete crib, my room without a view. Dreamless nights and endless days, punching this heavy bag like Lewis or Ali. Like James Brown at the Apollo. Out of confusion, out of bondage, up from slavery, up from Maryland, up from Mississippi up from the gutter in which I'm lying right now, choking on my own filth in the automotive exhaust. See me in your rearview mirror? 
Now look into your future. Snap into that virtual reality. Am I still preaching gospel on late night TV? Pushing pancake batter? Reading old slave narratives as bedtime stories? Putting America to sleep? I've gone underground, way underground, burrowed underneath Mount Rushmore in Stone Mountain, Georgia, got an inventory of all Confederate flags and colored jockey statues, closely monitoring the activities of the brother who took my mom's car keys on Crenshaw, and the brother who put a knife to my lady's neck on Wilshire, and the brother who pulled a gun on me, claiming to be an off-duty cop in search of a bicycle, and the brothers who stomped my friend to death in front of the Hollywood Palladium and laughed. Something about a black leather jacket. Are my references too obscure? Can you follow my drift? In the Atlantic? In the Caribbean? In the creek in chapter 4 of Frederick Douglass's narrative? In an instant, poor Denby was no more. His mangled body sank out of sight. And blood and brains marked the water where he had stood. The deed was done by a religious overseer named Gore. Hell of a baptism. But still I have risen to fight the Negro breaker Jim Crow, naysayers and doomsayers, enemies within, supremacists of every stripe, my own self-doubt and suicidal tendencies. You have seen how a man was made a slave. You shall see how a slave was made a man armed with two fists, one mind, and a semicolon. Dangerous, devious, made it to Trebekah in one day, feeling as if I'd escaped a den of lions. One of the lucky ones, I suppose. So many more to follow. So many more to lead the way. Now take me to the bridge. I'm ready. Please listen to Sophia Lowers in Twirler by the anonymous playwright called Jane Martin. started when I was six. Mama sawed off a broom handle, and Uncle Carbo slapped some sort of silver paint. Well, great, really, on it. And I went down to the basement and twirled. Later on, Mama hit the Daily Double on two horses named Spin Dry and Silver Revolver. She said that was a sign, so she gave me lessons at the Dainty Deb Dance Studio, where the lady, Miss Aurelia, taught some twirling on the side. I won the Ohio Juniors title when I was six, and the Midwest Young Adults Division three years later, and then in high school, I finished fourth in the Nationals. <laughs> Mama and I wore look-alike Statue of Liberty costumes that she had to send clear to Nebraska to get. And Daddy was there with a T-shirt with my name on it. April. My first name's April. My last name is March. There were 4,000 people there. And, and when they yelled my name, golden balloons fell out of the ceiling. I mean, nobody... Not even Charlene Ann Morrison finished fourth at my age. Oh, I've flown high, but I've known tragedy both. My daddy says it's put spirit in my soul and steel in my heart. 
My left hand was crushed in a riding accident by a horse named Big Blood Red, and though I came back to twirl, I could never do it to the highest level. That was denied me by Big Blood Red, who clipped my wings. You mustn't pity me, though. Please, by no means. No. Being denied showed me the way. It, it showed me the glory that sits inside life where you can't see it. People think you're a twit if you twirl. It's a prejudice of the unknowing. Twirlers are the niggers of the white university. Yes, they are. This one time, I was doing fire batons in a night game, and all of a sudden, I see this guy walk out of the stands. I was doing triples, and he walks right out past the halftime marshals and comes up to me. He had this blue beaded headband on. I can still see it. Walks right up, and when I confront after a back reverse, he spits in my face. That was the only single time I ever dropped a baton. Dropped them in front of 60,000 people. And he, he smiles, see? And he says this thing, which I won't repeat. He called me a bodily part in front of half of Ohio. It, it was like being raped. It shows that beauty inspires hate, and that hating beauty is Satan. But you haven't twirled before, have you? I, I can see that by your hands. Would you like to hold my silver baton? Here, hold it. You can't imagine what it feels like to have that baton up in the air. I used to twirl with this one girl who called it the blue color zen. Batons catch the sun when they're up, and, and when they go up, you go up too. It's, oh, you can't twirl if you're not inside the ton. And when you've got them up over 20 feet, it's, it's like flying or gliding. Your hands are still down, but your insides spin and rise and leave the ground. Only twirlers know that, so, so we're not niggers. Oh, and the secret. The secret for a twirler is the light. You live or you die with the light. It's your fate. And the best is a February sky, clouded right over in the late afternoon. It's, it's all background then. And what happens is, the tons leave tracks, traces. They etch the air. And if you're hot... If your hands have it, you can draw on the sky. Charlene Ann Morrison was... God, Charlene Ann. Now she was inspired by something beyond man. She won the Nationals nine years in a row, unparalleled and unrepeatable. The last two years, she had leukemia, and... At the end, you could see right through her hands when she twirled. Charlene died with a ton 30 feet up. Her mama swears on that. And I did speed with Charlene at regionals in Fargo. And she may have been fibbing. But she says that there was a day when her tons erased while they turned. Like... The sky was a sheet of rain, and the tons were car wipers. 
and when she had erased the certain part of the sky, you could see the face of the Lord God Jesus. And his hair was all rhinestones, and he was doing this incredible singing like the sound of a piccolo. The people that said Charlene was crazy probably never twirled a day in their life. Twirling is the physical parallel of revelation. You can't know that. Twirling's the throwing of yourself up to God. It's a pure gift, hidden from Satan because it's wrapped and disguised in the midst of football. It's God-throwing, spirit fire, and very few come to it. You have to grow eyes in your heart to understand its message. But when it opens to you, it becomes your path to suffer ridicule, to be crucified by misunderstanding, and to be spit upon. I need my baton back now. There is one twirling that no one sees. At the winter solstice, we go to this meadow that God showed us just outside of Green Bay. And the God-throwers come there on December 21st, and there's snow, sometimes deep snow, and our clothes fall away, and we stand there unprotected while acolytes bring the tons. Ebony tons with razors set along the shaft. And they're, they're three feet long. But one by one, the twirlers throw two tons each, 30 feet up. And as they fall back, they cut your hands. The razors arch into the air and find God. And then fly down to take your blood in a crucifixion. And the red drops draw God on the ground. And if you're up with the batons, you can look down and see him revealed. This red on white. Red on white. Oh, you can't imagine. You can't imagine how wonderful it is. I started twirling when I was six. But I never really twirled until my hand was crushed by the horse named Big Blood Red. I've seen God's face from 30 feet up in the air, and I know him. Listen. I'll leave my silver baton here for you, lying here as if I forgot it. And when the people file out, you can wait back and pick it up. It, it can be yours. It can be your burden. It is the eye of the needle. I leave it for you. And finally, William Smithers in Do You Know Me by George W.S. Trow. I was well known. I was so well known, everyone knew me. I was the best known person in the world. I put on my plaid shirt and my thick boots and the thin whale corduroy pants, and I was the best known person in the world. And then I went slowly, 
I looked in the mirror. I wore the thin whale corduroy pants because I think the thick whale is effeminate. I went out my door. I went down the stairs. I lived on the second floor, no indoor entrance. I had to walk up and down outside stairs to get in and out. Outside stairs. My outside stairs. My weather-stained porch. Not a very pretty porch. No room for a nice chair. Paint peeling off, just like loneliness sloughing off the skin, onto the sidewalk. I walked onto the sidewalk, watched the sidewalk, focused on the sidewalk. I saw my thick boots only as a blur. So cracked, that sidewalk. The little shoots of grass, the roots of trees, working the cement into dust. I was so well-known that that sidewalk was well-known. I was quite well-known when I was still young. I had many friends, Bobby and Sammy and uh, Taddy and Ronnie and Billy. I had so many friends. I liked friends who were girls but had boys' names, but ending in a different letter than a boy's name would. That was the kind of friend I wanted. That was the kind of friend I had. That was my preference. My preference was for people just like that. I wanted to be specific. I wanted to be so specific that no one would have any doubts. That was the only reason I was that well-known, because it was so specific, because there wasn't any doubt. People with a name like Sammy or Ronnie or Jamie or Tony knew that kind of name was my preference. That made me well-known. Would you know me if I showed you my papers? Would you know me if I showed you my bulldog editions? Would you know me if I showed you my special home editions? Would you let me show you the blue final and the final blue? Will you glance at my papers? Will you have a look? Do you know me when you have a look? Do you know me when I call you on the phone? Do you know me when I walk on the sidewalk, when I watch the cracks? Do you lie there and think? It's him. He's on the sidewalk. Do you remember the texture of my nose, the slightly grainy texture, as though it had been rubbed and rubbed and rubbed? Do you have a general impression of my face, just that a general impression? Nothing more than that? Just a vague feeling that the face is a type of face? A face of a type that a certain kind of person would have? Is it abstract the way you feel when I tried so hard to supply detail? I wanted everything so clear, so specific. I went to so much trouble. I dressed in a certain way. I dressed three times. I put on my clothes, and then I took them off, and then I put them on, and then I took them off, and then I put them on in a final way that was very specific. Then I walked slowly, keeping my eye on the pavement. I made the pavement so specific. I made my friends so specific. Sometimes it happened they thought they were general, but they were wrong. I made them specific down to the details. I knew all the details and went over them three times. That was my preference. Do you remember my preference? Do you remember the way I made them nervous? That was part of the preference.
Do you remember the way I made them reluctant to wear their uniforms in public? That was part of my preference. So specific, my preference. So specific, the way the little uniforms looked under a big bulky coat. Would you know me if I wore a uniform? Would you know me if I wore a bulky coat? Would you know me if I moved a step closer? Would you know me if I took off my hat? Would you know me if I showed you a clipping? Would you know me if I took a clipping and circled my name so it would stand out and then attached a small piece of white paper with gum or mucilage with my name typed out, just like my name typed out on the linotypes and on the wire services and on the special identification cards they require in so many places, typed out on plastic? Would you know me if I typed my name out? Would you know me if I asked you for a dime? Would you know me if I asked to walk you home? You have heard Just Between Us, a selection of solo performance pieces from some of our country's most gifted storytellers. Alvin Katakutan's No Fat Pigs Allowed was performed by himself, Eric Bogosian's Rash by Don Stewart, Josh Kornbluth's Rid Diaper Baby was performed by Tony Marotti, Roger Gwenver Smith's Blood and Brains by Ted Wynn, Jane Martin's Twirler was performed by Sophia Lowers, George W. S. Tro's Do You Know Me by William Smithers. Just Between Us was produced, directed, and recorded by your host, William Smithers, in Santa Barbara, California. Post-production, Lars Nelson. This has been a presentation of KCSB and the Santa Barbara Theater of the Air.